in two weeks, our new pastor will be here. A new era, uh, a fresh start in struggling with the question what to preach about on July 4th. It was either something patriotic or to pick a unique situation that uh, uh, is applicable to our church. And I chose the second for seldom do we get to prepare for a new pastor. So the question presents itself right off the bat. What can we do to make our relationship with our new pastor the best that it can be? Most of you do not know this, uh, but my father was a preacher, my grandfather was a preacher, my uncle was a preacher, my brother is a preacher, and I have to tell you that uh, doing this myself has been a real kick. And speaking for the rest of the team that you have trusted to take us through these last six months, I don't know of any one of them, uh, Nate and Dan and Ryan uh, and Dave and myself, that have not been blessed uh, through this exercise of being a substitute preacher. In many different ways, we and I have felt the agony and the ecstasies of ministry. As a preacher's kid, I saw it firsthand. So, how about the ecstasies that I saw? Uh, before I started school, I would listen to my father preach on the radio. I would answer the phone when someone called my dad to help when there was trouble. He conducted weddings and communion and baptisms. And when I went to my father's funeral three years ago, young and old lined up to tell me about his visits in the hospital or how he counseled them or taught them uh, or how he led them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. What a way to spend a life. There were agonies in my dad's ministry too. I was one of them. Jack Carroll wrote an article entitled, Those Preacher's Kids, and he writes, hang around many churches for long, and you'll almost surely hear tales of various preacher's kids, PKs as sometimes they are affectionately called. Typically, it is a tale of some wild adventure or prank that a PK was involved in to the embarrassment or the agony of his parents. I shouldn't be telling you this. That's the phrase of a desperate preacher. I should, everybody's listening now. I shouldn't be telling you this. But I was sitting in church one Sunday morning. I was an eight-year-old preacher's kid. Back then, the pastoral prayer was the weekly ritual in church. And I've got to tell you, it was long very long, and forgive me, Lord, for little boys, it was boring. The prayer covered all four corners of the world. It blessed every sniffle. 
It covered every backache. It pleaded for healing for every congregational bunion that ever was or ever will be. And it was a sin if the preacher's kid didn't close his eyes. You see the plot emerging here now. Preacher's kid, boredom, eight-year-old boys, every head, eye, head bowed, every eye closed. Agony in ministry is at hand. For you see, that week I had just redeemed three large root beer bottles at the corner grocery store. Five cents per bottle, three nickels, enough to buy a roll of caps. little red ribbon designed to make my Roy Rogers six-shooter go bang, bang. Minute three of the pastoral prayer, my hand is in my pocket. Minute four, the caps have worked their way into my hand. Minute five, my eyes are open, and there they are, a roll of caps in my hand. And then minute six, the devil guides my thumbnail over one of those little red dots. The little red dot went tss. It didn't go bang. It went tss. And there it was, an oh-so-tiny puff of smoke right before my eyes, right over my head. And, and to this day, I have this recurring dream of a puff of smoke over my head in church, pointing an arrow right down at my head. No one really noticed that Sunday morning, but an elder told on me. So later that day, my father taught me firsthand the meaning of agony in the ministry. <laughs> let's forget agony this morning, and let's talk about ecstasy in ministry. I'd like us to notice how ecstasy in ministry literally pours from Paul's pen in Philippians 1.3. So follow along as I read, please, and notice now the feeling that comes from him as he writes this passionate paragraph. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. Heart. For whether I am in chains or def conf defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ. This church is Paul's darling. 
Those phrases, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy. I have you in my heart. All of you share God's grace with me. I long for all of you. This is ecstasy. And I'm wondering what in the world it would feel like, what it would be like if five years or ten years from now our pastor said these things to us. Why did Paul write this? Is there a reason? And we look at verse 4 of this, and he says, I always pray with joy because. Whenever you see the word because, you have a reason coming. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Here are two ideas in this reason. These two ideas are super glued, they're connected, they're bonded, they're stitched together into one reason. Two ideas supporting Paul's gushing ministry, uh, his gushing ecstasy in the ministry coming out here, even while he's writing from a dungeon. This church understood these ideas, and we do well to understand them too. So let's go digging. Let's go excavating uh, and deep, deepen our understanding as to what in the world is behind ecstasy in ministry. First, this church was Paul's ecstasy because she understood gospel. She understood gospel. Now, that's a strange way to put it in it. But in verse 3, he says, I, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Now, what pops into your mind when I say the word gospel? Unfortunately, the word gospel has been crammed into a pithy slogan on a bumper sticker. Honk if you love Jesus. Jesus would use his turn signals. Do you follow Jesus this close? <laughs> if God is your co-pilot, swap seats. Fight truth decay. Love Jesus. How will you spend eternity, smoking or non-smoking? There'll be no reduction in the wages of sin. When down in the mouth, remember Jonah, he came out all right. And here's a biggie. I mean, this one, this one makes me feel all warm and bubbly inside. Forbidden fruit creates many jams. I wonder who thought of that. For some, the gospel is a waving sign between the goal that says John 3.16 at an FNL game. For some, the gospel may be what TV preachers say. For me, the gospel was the remedy for guilt that I felt when I told a lie when I was six years old. This problem of understanding the gospel uh, became so serious that way back about 50 years ago, a man named Joseph Bailey uh, a writer out of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, uh, wrote a book called The Gospel Blimp. Now, I suspect most of you have never seen it because it's so old, but the story of the gospel blimp 
is fascinating. You see, in this book, George and Ethel want to share the gospel with their neighbors. So George had an idea. What if a blimp hovered over his neighbor's houses and towed a big illuminated sign that said, all have sinned? And what if that blimp had giant loudspeakers that played gospel music and the pastor's sermon from last Sunday? So, George, in this book, starts a ministry called International Gospel Blimp Incorporated, I-G-B-I. And they raise money and they hire a consultant from Germany to advise them on blimp operations. And then they form groups and a, a ladies' auxiliary. And then they throw a citywide launching party for the gospel blimp. And day after day in this book, the gospel blimp hovers over their neighbors' homes. And the blimp drops track bombs with different color cellophane wings that twirl counterclockwise as they fall through the air. And the bombs clog up the neighbors' gutters and their houses, and the loudspeakers don't work very well and skip very important words. And yes, on one of those flights, there is a jolt and a hissing sound the blimp has grazed a radio tower, and this giant blimp now ends up hopelessly wedged between two houses, and the blimp makes the evening news. The fire department is not happy. Well, that's one way to understand it. Billy Graham's life and organization is devoted to the gospel. I belong to Campus Crusade for Christ at CU uh, and uh, went to the Rose Parade in Pasadena to explain the gospel. Child evangelism teaches little children the gospel in backyard programs, and uh, their favorite tool was the wordless book. And it was so good, I remember it to this day. The wordless book had a black page for sin and a red page for blood and a white page for forgiveness and a gold page for heaven and a green page for reading the Bible. A wordless book that explained the gospel. And yet we are trained to take Christ's great commission seriously, to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Paul's inspiring declaration, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. So what pops into your mind when I dare to use the word gospel, and some people look at the gospel as a treasure, and some look at it as trivial, and some look at it as just a grand tradition. But the Philippian church understood gospel. Paul now points out in this verse, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. So what in the world is it? What is the gospel? And it's worth time just to stop for a second and, and, and share with you the fact that the gospel is, is, is not something small. The gospel is news. Now, how important is news 
to you. I know that our household stops until we know who wins Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> the gospel is not only news, the gospel is good news. And I bet you can all guess what will happen in the country that wins the World Cup this week. You will see what good news means. But let's go farther. The gospel is good news about things that matter. And there are a lot of people who are tempted to think that the gospel is trivial or dated or irrelevant, but if we look at it again, the gospel touches everything that is or will become important to everyone here. So now the gospel is, in fact, good news about things that matter from God. When we trivialize it, it's kind of like trying to take Lake Powell and pour it into a bathtub. It is so huge, so big, that it'll take a lifetime for the church to probe its bigness and wonder. The church has been entrusted with the gospel, and that gospel possesses the grand themes, no, the galactic themes of life. The gospel contains news about larger-than-life items, and that is good news about this from God. And dare I now, just for a second, dare to touch just how big and how wonderful this good news is. I'll survey some verses, which I love to do in my class. The gospel is about destiny and future. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel, for by this gospel you are saved of first importance. Christ died, He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to Scriptures. And that's just the beginning. The gospel is about God's presence. God's presence in the threat of isolation and neglect, Romans 8 says, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel is about absurdity and the value of life. In John 1 we read, Christ was in the beginning and through Him all things were made. The gospel is about care and the specter of fear. In Hebrews we read, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. The gospel is about meaning and purpose and significance. My favorite verse in the Bible, Christ is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The gospel is about value and regret and failure, for Peter now writes, for you know it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
The gospel is about the universe and dying here and now and tomorrow, where in 1 Corinthians we read, all things are yours, the word or of life or death of the present or the future. All are used, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. If this isn't good news, what is? Good news about things that matter from God, destiny and future, God's presence and isolation and neglect, absurdity and the value of life, care and the specter of fear, meaning, purpose, and significance in everything, value, regret, and failure, the universe dying here, now, and tomorrow at its basic level, at the basic level, the gospel is the greatest idea that ever was or will be. But if you read the title of this sermon this morning, it's more than just a good idea. I'm glad Paul talks about something else in his reason for ecstasy in the ministry. Paul adored this church because, secondly, the church understood that gospel was in partnership. It understood gospel and it understood partnership. This church saw that the gospel was more than just a good idea. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm a sucker for a good idea. I love ideas. An enterprising young boy sat poised on the eighth hole of a local country club golf course, and he approached a foursome and made a remarkable pitch. He said to the foursome, would you like to buy this golf ball? Yeah, how much? Seventy-five bucks. Seventy-five bucks? Why so much? Well, it's a perfect golf ball. Perfect? Yes perfect. It will never get lost. If you hit it into the water, it will skip its way across the lake and bounce up on the cross like grass on, on, like magic. When it gets dark, it has strobe lights that flash in fluorescent red. And when you hit it into the woods, it will make a buzz and transmit a GPS signal and aim a laser beam right at you. So the foursome said, that's great. Let's take four of them. The little boy said, I'm sorry, I only have one. And they asked, well, where did you get it? And he said, I found it. Now, I'll let that one sink in for a second. We need something more a good idea. Ideas do not stand on their own. God had an idea about reality, but creation is more than just a good idea. God had an idea about revealing Himself. Jesus is more than just a good idea. God had an idea about loving others, and the church is more than just a good idea. And God had an idea about building relationship with you and me. 
And the gospel is more than just a good idea, for good ideas exist in partnership, a partnership with stuff. A classic idea of a partnership is when I look at my own children or I look at the other children and I realize now when I look at a child, you cannot separate mother from father in a child and you can't separate father from mother. This piece of flesh and blood is this connection now between father and mother that cannot be separated. So now we see in this church a classic example of partnership in the gospel. And as you sweep the book of Philippians, as you read through it, suddenly you see Paul praising this church for a good work. He praises them for being helpers. He praises them for being encouragers. He praises them for being comforters. He praises them for being tender. He praises them for being compassionate and gentle and sacrificial and for being share-minded and forgiving. And then he calls them dear friends, and then he calls them partners. They knew that the gospel was more than just a good idea. Devout mother made it a point to teach her six-year-old lessons of faith whenever she could. Since her child often seemed to be afraid, mom would reassure her that God was always near. One evening, mom tucked her little girl into bed, and they said prayers, and then mom shut out the lights, and she went downstairs, and the summer storm blew in, vivid flashes of lightning, thunder rumbled through the little girl's bedroom, and after one particularly bad flash and boom, mom heard the cries of her little girl. Come and get me, come and get me, the little girl cried. So mom went upstairs to find her little girl shaking in fear, and she thought it a perfect opportunity to teach her a lesson about God. Haven't I always told you you needn't be afraid that God is always near and nothing can harm you? The little girl put her arms around her mother's neck and said, Yes, Mom, I know that God is always near. But when thunder and lightning are so awful, I need something with skin on him. Gushing ecstasy in ministry. Good news about things that matter with skin on it. That's partnership in the gospel. So Paul writes, it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me and God can testify how long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ. Forty years ago, I 
shot myself in the foot, not with a real bullet, but a painful and awful failure. I know what it was like to feel a real bullet inside of me. And I'm amazed that over the years, as I look back as to why in the world I would be here right now, to what do I point my love for and a position within the church? And I would say it's not a sermon. It's not a Sunday school lesson, and it's not a tract, and it's not even the years and years and years of study that I've put into this Christianity. I've got to tell you right now, it was because of four or five men and a loving wife that had skin on them that loved me back into the fellowship. So now we look at a new era in ministry and our hopes are high because he's a good preacher and he's magnetic and he's great, but I got to tell you right now that he will not make it outside of a partnership with a congregation. It's you, your ability to care, to love, to encourage, to spend time with other people, to open your hearts to Littleton and Lakewood that will make a partnership in the gospel work. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you are not just an idea. You are more than a pastor and more than a program and more than a building and more than a song and more than a sermon and more than fun and games and tricks and gadgets. You partner your good news with flesh and blood people, people who will care people who will listen, people who will help, people who will be the wind beneath the wings of a pastor called and committed to lead us. May we never be seduced into thinking otherwise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Join us next week as we have a visitor from the Colorado Rockies and then in two weeks. Our new pastor will be here. Have a good weekend.